0: Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing
1: editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Meir, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. Please subscribe to The Down Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five star rating and review. What are we going to be covering on this week's show, Nier? We are going to be starting off with a couple of very different Senate races, the likely open seat in California and the definitely open seat in Indiana. We also want to recap the first poll that anyone has ever seen of the Kentucky governor's race, one of the top races on the ballot in 2023. And we will wrap with another 2023 race that should not fly under the radar. And that is the contest for a vacant seat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. We are then going to be joined by Kyle Kondik, the managing editor of Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball and one of the top election analysts in the country. We are going to be discussing race ratings, the Senate map, and much more. Great episode for you. Please stay with us. So we've had some developments in what is almost certain to be the most expensive Senate race of the 2024 cycle. I'm talking about California, of course. Beard, why don't you get us filled in on what's been going on out West?
0: Yeah, there's long been talk of a potential free-for-all in a Senate seat in California with just a million Democrats running. And it looks like that might be starting to happen for 2024, of course. As we've talked about, everyone expects incumbent Senator Dianne Feinstein to retire and not run in 2024. We've already talked about one declared candidate, Representative Katie Porter. Representative Barbara Lee has also reportedly told folks that she's going to jump in, though she hasn't officially announced yet. And now just this week, we've got another representative from California who is officially announced, that's Adam Schiff. He's declared for the seat as well. All three of them have sort of strong favorabilities um, among national Democrats for different reasons. Schiff, of course, rose to Providence um, on the Intelligence Committee. He also led the first impeachment against Donald Trump. Porter, as we've talked about, is a protege of Elizabeth Warren. you know, been prominent in a number of hearings against corporate executives. Lee is one of the most progressive members of Congress. She was the lone vote against authorizing the use of force in Afghanistan, which really gave her an enormous amount of credibility among the left for for many years. Of course, there's a number of other candidates who could run. This is still very early, so we don't know how long the list of prominent Democrats this is going to be. The one benefit that Schiff has is that he has a ton of money because he didn't have a competitive race like Katie Porter has. He has over $20 million in the bank, while Porter had to spend a lot of her money making sure that she won re-election in 2022. The other notable factor that this creates is California 30, which is Schiff's seat, is now going to be open. It's, of course, it's a very safe blue seat in the Los Angeles area. There's going to be a bunch of Democratic candidates. There's one particularly notable candidate that's filed with the FEC but hasn't announced yet, which is Boy Meets World actor Ben Savage, who ran for West Hollywood City Council um, last year and lost. So I don't know how competitive he's going to be, but it certainly gives a little you know, celebrity gravitas to the race um, as that starts to develop.
1: Do celebrity and gravitas belong in the same sentence?
0: I think in Los Angeles they do. I think that's the (laughs) exception.
1: You know, Schiff said one thing. Everyone has still been kept wondering by Feinstein. It would be shocking if she ran again it turned out that in the fourth quarter of 2022 we just got her fundraising reports she only had ten thousand dollars on hand but schiff said as part of his announcement that he wouldn't be moving forward unless he had feinstein's blessing and that seems to be the clearest sign yet that thank god she isn't going to run again because really it's it's a very sad situation she was a pioneer in so many ways but obviously should have stepped aside some time ago. So California and the nation will be lucky to get new representation come the next Congress. Is that, are, are we gonna be up to the 119th?
0: Um, I think so. It's, it's hard to keep track nowadays if we've been through so many.
1: <laughs> so another Senate race that we need to dive into is the open seat in Indiana. And for once, at least for the moment, It seems like Republicans are not in disarray regarding a GOP Senate primary. I know that seems hard to believe after what we saw for the last couple of years. But the current incumbent, Mike Braun, is running for governor. And far-right Congressman Jim Banks currently has the field to himself Because former governor Mitch Daniels, who was really an old line, classical establishment, Republican, real DC creature, he had been looking at the race. But Daniels said that he wasn't going to run. And in response, the NRSC put out a statement that all but endorsed banks, that the committee said that it was looking forward to working with him as a top recruit. Uh, He also has the support of the club for growth and Donald Trump. And this trifecta is pretty unusual because the club and Trump are now back to hating one another. He recently called them the club for no growth. That is so, so clever, just vintage Donald Trump humor, but they've all lined up behind banks in this case. There are still, however, some prominent Republicans who are still thinking about running, including Congresswoman Victoria Sparts. So maybe banks will get some kind of a challenge remains to be seen. No matter what, though, Indiana has become such a red state I think that even if there is unexpectedly yet another GOP shitshow primary, it's almost impossible to imagine them somehow fumbling this seat in the general election. At the very least, Republicans will be glad not to have yet another mess on their hands. But the reality is it doesn't really help them take back the Senate in any particularly direct way. because. They need to beat some Democrats to do that. And this is an open seat that, by all rights, they should hold without breaking a sweat.
0: Absolutely. And and of course, the fact that Jim Banks is now probably going to become a US senator, he's extremely conservative, um, is certainly important information, but I think the important thing about the Republican Party here is just how far it's traveled away from a Mitch Daniels-esque figure. Richard Luger, of course, was a very prominent Republican senator from Indiana for many, many years who was you know, on the more moderate side of the Republican Party. Lost his primary in 2012, which of course led to the Republicans briefly losing the seat for one term until they won it back in 2018. And I think Mitch Daniels is sort of a Luger esque figure. And the fact that he couldn't have even run a competitive race, I don't think, against a more conservative candidate like Banks, he would have gotten smashed in this primary. So it's no surprise to me that he ultimately decided to forego a race because he saw the writing on the wall that this is not. This is not the party of Richard Lugar or Mitch Daniels anymore.
1: Yeah. Banks, just to give you a sense of how extreme he is, he had been tapped by Kevin McCarthy to serve on the original version of the Jan 6 committee. And Pelosi refused to seat him on that committee because he's a total insurrectionist and election denier. So what you just talked about, Beard, what played out here, which is the more a moderate-establishment-type Republican deferring to the far right, OK, they can get away with that in dark red Indiana. But if that happens in other states, even a state like Ohio, as it very probably will, that's going to cause a redux of the exact same problems we saw in 22.
0: Yeah, and we saw that in states like New Hampshire and even Maryland, where they really need Mitch Daniels as candidates, and they potentially had them, and Governor Larry Hogan in Maryland and Governor Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, who who knows if they could have gotten through a primary. Of course, they won their governor's races, but federal primaries are different. But those are the types of candidates Republicans need in purple and blue states to make those seats competitive. And they're very reluctant to nominate them. They want the crazies. And so in Indiana, it's fine, but you know we'll see how that turns out more nationwide.
1: So... I think we need to swivel back to 2023 because we have a couple of big races that we have not talked about a ton so far on the down ballot but what's going on down in kentucky
0: yes the the kentucky governor's race is potentially i think the marquee race of the year and has not gotten a ton of national coverage yet. It's sort of still bubbling under a little bit. But we did just get a poll from Mason Dixon, um, which is a pretty reputable pollster. And it showed that Democratic incumbent Governor Andy Bashir is leading the GOP frontrunner, Attorney General Daniel Cameron, 49 to 40. So a pretty healthy lead from this you know, one poll and actually does even better against the rest of the field that they polled, leading by double digits comfortably. Now, this is, of course, just one poll of a very tough red state. So I don't think people should, you know, go all in on the fact that Bashir has a near 10-point lead here. Four years ago, the same pollster found um, Andy Bashir starting with a similar lead against then-incumbent GOP Governor Matt Bevin, only for them to come up with a tied poll in October. So I think it's very clear um, that this race is going to be very close and very competitive, regardless of where it might be now, you know, before the campaign has really engaged fully. But polls do show that the Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who also has the backing of Trump, um, does have a clear primary lead. So I think You know, I think you have to start him as the favorite. He would be the first black governor of Kentucky. Another candidate, former U.S. Ambassador Kelly Craft for the Republicans, has spent to get her name out there. But she attracted a lot of undesired attention after running an ad about fentanyl where she said her kitchen table has an empty chair. And of course, everyone saw this ad and thought that this was a very moving discussion about someone who had died, like a loved one that she knew that had died from like a fentanyl overdose. And then eventually she came out and was like, oh no, that person's not dead. The person is still alive. So the empty chair is just an incredibly strange and inappropriate metaphor because the person is still in the chair. So that obviously did not help her campaign despite sending some money. And it's really hard for me to see um, an establishment-esque attorney general um, who already has Trump's endorsement, losing the primary at this point.
1: Yeah, that Kelly Kraft ad, it was almost like the opioid crisis version of stolen valor. That was just <laughs> deeply, deeply strange. You know, that Mason-Dixon poll, it did seem really positive for Bashir. And it also had him at... A job approval rating in the 60s. But interestingly, there was a poll from Morning Consult recently, sometime last month, that also put Bashir's approval rating in the 60s. That's extraordinarily high for any governor, but certainly for a Democratic governor in a red state. I'm definitely eager to see more polling data. I have a very strong feeling that this one will be a lot closer, but it does seem like Bashir has a very legit chance at winning a second term.
0: Yeah, and we did see John Bell Edwards four years ago able to, you know, win re-election, um, being a, a strong Democratic candidate in a very red state. Um, so it's certainly doable. And I do, I do think Bashir is popular in Kentucky, but of course, a lot of those. Folks who may say they approve of Bashir may just go and vote for the Republican anyway. We've seen that before, too.
1: There's one last race on the ballot in 2023 that we want to touch on, and that is the fight for an open seat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Democrats currently have a four to two majority on the court. That's because the chief judge, Max Baer very unexpectedly died last year, and his seat currently remains vacant. The state Democratic Party just endorsed an appellate judge, Daniel McCaffrey, over a colleague, Deborah Kunselman for this race. Typically, we have seen in judicial races in Pennsylvania that when the state party issues an endorsement, it is quite common to see the other candidates drop out, at least on the Democratic side. That seems to have been somewhat less the case these days for Republicans. Not so surprising, given the GOP's general disarray when it comes to primaries. So we don't know yet who the Republican standard bearer will be. The primary is in May and the general election is in November. Even though control of the court is not necessarily at stake even if republicans win democrats would still have a four to three majority there have been some recent cases where on some major issues, including voting rights, that one or another Democratic justice has sided with Republicans. Again, it didn't affect the outcome. But if you have a 4-3 court instead of a 5-2 court, then if a Democrat switches sides like that, then you could see the outcome affected. And that could be particularly devastating in voting rights matters. So this race might not be quite as high profile as the April battle to flip the Wisconsin Supreme Court. But this is definitely the second most important state Supreme Court race of the year that's going to be on the ballot this fall.
0: And one of the things we've seen with these staggered Supreme Court elections, like a number of these states have, is that you really can't afford to take a cycle off. Of course, in this case, the control of the court in terms of the number of progressives versus the number of conservatives is not up for grabs. But what we saw in 2020 was Democrats had a poor night in, say, the North Carolina Supreme Court races, which set up the loss of the control of the court in 2022. And up in Wisconsin, some past victories for Democrats in Supreme Court races have set up the opportunity now to flip the court in April. So we don't want to be like, oh, the control of the court is fine. We've got four Democrats on there and let that go. We want to make sure and hold that fifth Democratic seat in Pennsylvania.
1: We always have to play the long game. That does it for our weekly hits. Coming up, we are going to be chatting with one of our favorite fellow election analysts. Kyle Kondik is the managing editor of a site you are very probably familiar with, Larry Sabato's crystal ball at the University of Virginia. We are going to talk about how their shop goes about doing their race ratings and what he sees happening on the Senate map for 2024. Please stay with us welcome back everyone we are joined today by kyle kondik who is the managing editor at sapato's crystal ball which is the university of virginia's center for politics nonpartisan newsletter on american campaigns and elections he is also one of the top observers of elections in the country, a very common presence on Twitter. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. We have been fans of yours for years.
2: Uh, right back at you. I, I was just saying before we started that uh, I read the Daily Coast elections uh, morning email basically every day and have Every day, basically, since I started in this job a dozen years ago, as long as you guys have been doing it, um, so I, you know, the, the information you guys provide is um, is extremely valuable. Both the, that morning email um, and keeping tabs on on campaigns and whatnot, and also a lot of the numbers you all produce about uh, you know presidential results and congressional districts and that sort of thing. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, the the work you all do.
1: We certainly love hearing that, and the feeling is mutual. But we would love to talk to you about how you got into the line of work that you're currently in. You've been at the Crystal Ball, which is really one of the top election sites in the country for more than a decade now. How did you get started there and what brought you there? Where where were you before Crystal Ball?
2: Yeah, so I'm from uh, Northeast Ohio. Um, and, you know, I was not really into politics that much when I was a kid or even as a teenager. Um, I was very much into history. I was a big World War II buff. Um, And so I, I read a lot of that stuff and followed that. And I think sort of through that, I sort of got to know like Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, and that kind of got me a little bit more interested in politics Sort of following those figures, but um, I didn't really get into it until I was in college at Ohio University. I was at the campus newspaper there, and uh, when I was in college, um, the 2004 election was my junior year, and I think for a lot of people my age anyway, the 2004 election was sort of a um, important moment in our lives. Is sort of following uh, following American politics, and sort of that got me into it. And then my first job out of college, uh, I worked at a small newspaper in new philadelphia dover ohio area and that was right at the time where zach space who you'll probably remember or remember covering um yes, zach space yes. had w- ended up winning the uh, uh winning election to uh that the u.s house district there that bob nay had held um former you know pretty prominent republican in both ohio and national circles who had a fall from grace and scandals and whatnot um but anyway nay um they left office, Zach Space, Democrat, replaced him as part of the sort of 2006 kind of blue dog wave. Um, And uh, I covered that. I got to. Uh, go to the Capitol um, with uh, uh, to sort of see space get sworn in. I was in the chamber for when Pelosi got you know became speaker, which is just kind of just kind of a cool moment for someone from you know small newspaper in in uh, uh, Northeast Ohio to to get to do. So uh, I did that job for for a year. I was in the editorial page editor at another newspaper, the Chronicle Telegram, up in Elyria, Ohio. Um, and through that, I got to meet um, Richard Cordray, who at that time was running in a special election for. State Attorney General, Democrat, and some of the folks affiliated with his campaign and kind of out of the blue after the election, they said, hey, would you want to work for us? And so I, 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 said, I uh, interviewed for a job and got it. And so I was uh, Cordray's kind of speechwriter. I did other communication stuff in Columbus for him for two years. Uh, Cordray lost to Mike DeWine um, for the Attorney General election in 2010. I had to find something else to do. I applied for the job down at Center for Politics and ended up getting it. I didn't really have any connection down there. It just just happened to you know to see the job and thought it looked interesting. And you know I've been there ever since. I mean uh, you know I'm, I've telecommuted from Washington for much of my time at Center for Politics. So I'm, I'm cur- I currently live in Washington, um, but uh, um, you know I've been working for the Center for Politics for many years and uh, it's been a very cool um, very cool job.
1: Uh, I think it's awesome that you mentioned that original Cordray-DeWine race because, of course, the two faced off in a rematch in 2018, which was another close, very competitive race, but for a different office for governor. And I remember wondering, I, 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 I don't remember what the answer is, but whether the same two candidates have faced off in a rematch for different state offices in, in different years. But obviously, the result was the same both times.
2: Uh, yeah, I'd imagine it happened. And actually, it was a little bit closer in 2010, although both races were, p- were pretty competitive. but. Um, you know, as a just sort of electoral geek, you know, you could see the just the differences in the electoral coalitions, for, you know, the two parties just between those two elections, because Cordray did much better in eastern Ohio, specifically Appalachian, Ohio and, and Youngstown, Warren, um, than he had done or he did a lot better in 2010 than he did in 2018. Um, Ted Strickland was also on the ballot that year. He was losing his gubernatorial reelection bid. But Strickland used to represent Sixth Congressional District, which is sort of the um, kind of uh, Ohio River District. Um, and, you know, you, you look at, uh, I think, under the old lines of the last decade, I don't think any district in the entire country moved more strongly toward the Republicans from 2012 to 2020 than Ohio Six did. So that was sort of the epicenter of of the, the kind of uh, uh, Trump, Trump or the the, the, uh, the Democrats sort of losing ground to Trump in kind of rural and small town America. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, you know, it was just interesting to sort of follow along with all that. And uh, Cordray is now working in the um, in the Biden administration. He was a great guy to work for. But I've been you know doing this for a dozen years and um, have been very happy about that.
0: Something really interesting that you got to do just this last year was be a part of CBS's election night decision desk. Now, this is something that people hear a lot about right around election time, but otherwise not too much, and you don't get a lot of looks inside That actual room where people are going through taking in this data and making these decisions. So tell us sort of how that worked, what you were doing as a part of that election night coverage, what the sort of you know hour by hour work was
1: i am so interested to hear your answer about this kyle because like beard said it's something we don't get great insight into so i i i, I really want to hear what you have to say
2: yeah i made a um, I tweeted about it that that i was going to do it um i don't know a month or two before the election and uh natalie jackson public religion research institute writes a conference national journal um she uh uh, I can't remember exactly what she said, but she she tweeted back to me and said it was like you know it was, it was almost like Fight Club you know it's like you, <laughs> you, you you don't talk about it or whatever I'm Sorry, I just can't I don't have the the, the specific quote uh, at the tip of my tongue but um, but yeah it is it, I guess it is something that that there is kind of a little bit of mystery around it I don't know if there's any particular reason for it I mean um, but you know the the what it it sort of evolved out of I I've been uh, I'd been helping. I helped on the Ohio primary night with CBS on their decision desk, and that was just via Zoom. Uh, But I do know Ohio pretty well, and so we were, you know, tracking the 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 JD Vance um, Senate primary, but most notably um, that evening. Although Governor DeWine also had something of a of a challenge. Um, I think he ended up getting slightly under 50%, but, but you know, really won fairly easily. But, um, so that was sort of my first experience doing it. And I, I did another night with them. And, um, you know, after that, they asked me to, you know, to, to, if I could actually come to New York and be part of the team on election night, which was very flattering. I mean, that's something I've kind of always wanted to do. Um, and, you know, CBS is, you know, first rate operation. And so it was, so Anthony Salvanto, who, you know, you'll see on, um face the nation and and you know also on election night he's sort of the head of the decision desk and then um he works very closely with uh, kabir kana who's sort of my more kind of direct contact over there um but you, you, you may see kabir also working on some of the polling that cbs does uh and then there are a few other folks who are i guess consultants the way that i i was For the 2022 election, and you know, we just gathered in New York a few days before the election. We sort of went through. um, There's this whole, you know, back end system of information. I think Edison Research provides the the data that goes into that. There are a few other. um, I think a few other different organizations use some different, you know, different data sources or what have you. But you know, for me, like just having access to basically a better sort of backend system that I could get just sitting at my desk at home was, was really kind of nice. And, um, you know, we just t- tried to, uh, Um, I work specifically on trying to call the house races uh, and uh, I work, work specifically with, uh, with, with Kabir Khanna on that on election night. And, you know, the way, the way it works is if you're watching, if you're watching CBS, you know, you'd see the big, big set out there. Um, And then, you know, uh, behind where the cameras are, there's like a glass wall and then there are a bunch of computers set up and that's where the decision desk team is. Um, And so, you know, the, the, the folks who are, uh you know who are on on camera you know they can sometimes come back and sort of like ask questions for you know look for stuff that they want to get on air because what we're really trying to do is to support the um the broadcast and you know give them things that they can use um and and to talk about and also for things that uh, you know cbs can share through uh social media and 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 whatnot so um but uh yeah i mean it was you know it was it was a cool um experience i was very flattered to be asked to do it and you know the the you know you, there is some kind of Modeling and statistical stuff going on in the sort of the back end system. But, you know, ultimately, just like anything else you're trying to call the races, you're just looking at all of the data that you have, um, you know, where the votes are coming from, um, whether it is early voting or absentee voting or election day, which sort of, you know, tells you. You know given given the, the sort of polarization by voting method you know that's become increasingly important and uh you know we just you you, you then you end up making a judgment and and uh you know i was i was happy that there is like a uh there and we, and we actually we didn't get to do it on election night because the house ended up being so close but like in the system there's like a button that says like call the house like You know, this is and and first of all, I if I tried to touch that button, it wouldn't do anything. My system didn't have access to that, which I was very happy about. Um, But we were sort of thinking, you know, given my own expectations and other expectations that the Republicans would win sort of a clear victory in the House. um, We thought that there would be a point where we we would hit that button. And so part of the prep work was like trying to think about the, the races that we thought were the most important and um you know doing some sort of kind of back of the envelope math about like how we expected the west coast races to break so that you could sort of assume like a floor for the for the parties but um you know we we ended, it ended up not being something that was callable on election night as as we all know now um and you know the republican majority ended up being you know rel- relatively small um but uh, you know ultimately you've got all of the you know all of the back end technology stuff and all of the models and whatnot, but you know ultimately the the people working on the desk have to sort of work collaboratively collaboratively together um, to to ultimately make you know render the judgments. And so um, you know there's a lot of quantitative information, but it's ultimately this sort of qualitative judgment. Um, it actually in some ways is kind of like what we do at the Crystal Ball in that you know we're not a model, we're a it's it's ultimately judgments about what we think the rating should be. Now we take a lot of things into account to do that, but ultimately we have sort of, I guess we have agency to decide sort of what we want to do. And we're not like the, the you know, it's not just the, the model sort of spitting out what what the projection is. It's ultimately um, a judgment call that we make, you know, sometimes we make the right judgment, sometimes we don't, but um, th- that's th- that's how it ends up working out.
1: So to dial back a little bit earlier in the night, 2022 was obviously a very strange and unusual election in so many ways. Was there any particular point, any particular race or state that you saw the data coming in? Maybe you made a call. Maybe you didn't want to make a call. And you thought, huh, this night might actually not be so terrible for Democrats after all.
2: Yeah, there were there were two races in particular that I was really tracking, um, both of which the Democrats ended up winning. One of them one of them was Rhode Island, too. Um, which, of course, I actually kind of thought would flip. But, you know, Republicans are trying to make these inroads into New England. And there was the open seat in Rhode Island, too. Um, Republicans had a pretty strong candidate in Alan Fung. Um, but ultimately, it became relatively clear that Seth Magaziner was going to win. I think he ended up winning by like four or five points, um, the Democrat. And so, you know, that was one that was sort of like on the wave watch. You know, it's like. If that one flips, it probably means Republicans are sort of winning the House going away. And then um, more specifically in the one that I really was tracking very closely was was Abigail Spanberger in Virginia 7. And that was one where we were starting to get I, I remember sort of working through it with, you know, with 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 other people on the desk about talking about like, oh, well. You know, in this these particular places, yeah, Yesley Vega is running ahead, but it's all election day, so we have to be careful about that. And here's a you know here's a locality where we have everything, at least that's what the system says. And Spanberger is you know running decently well, or just a little bit behind Biden. Of course, Biden won that district by like six and a half points, so there was a little bit of slack there for Spanberger. And you know that's one that that I really ended up spending a lot of time on that evening, or at least early in the evening, you know, we were able to make a call there for Spanberger. Um, and that was also another one that was sort of in like the kind of the, 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 the wave watch um, category. So I think I think those are the two that that I think of in terms of early in the evening. And I remember, you know, do, we were doing the prep work for election night, you know, what were the states we were watching it was like Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina and Florida of course florida like looked like a mega wave but as we now know the the there was a red wave in certain places it just was sort of unevenly applied across the country and you could even argue that there was like i wouldn't say there was a blue wave necessarily anywhere maybe michigan but that th- the, there was not like a uniform swing, clearly, in a lot of these states. Um, but uh, yeah, those, those, were, those were the two races. And, you know, once the Democrats had won those two, it sort of seemed like, OK, this thing is, is going a little bit different way than, than maybe we thought.
0: Yeah, I remember tweeting on election night somewhere, you know, somewhere in the middle. It was like, really, outside of Florida, things are fine. Florida, Florida is terrible. Otherwise, things are things are actually going pretty well, which is sort of the weird dichotomy
2: of that night. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the Democrats ended up almost like some of the, quote, safe Democratic seats left behind after the, you know, Ron DeSantis gerrymander. You know, some of those ended up being kind of close, like the the seat to Jared Moskowitz won, for instance, and I think maybe maybe one or two others. And, you know, it was also kind of reminiscent of, of Election Night 2020 when I still think the sort of the the big flashball moment of that whole night for me. And I was not working on the the desk at that time. I was just, just following along um, was uh, was when Miami-Dade reported and, you know, Clinton won it by 30 and then Biden won it by seven. And that was like, whoa, Mm -hmm. um, something's going on here. But, but again, it was was sort of unevenly applied because, you know, really Biden was doing pretty, doing fine in in other places. Now you also had in 2020 that we knew there was going to be like a big lag in Pennsylvania, um, and we, I was sort of ready for there to be a big lag in Pennsylvania this time, but but you know first of all the you know Fe, even Fetterman's race ended end up being not that close like we won by f- five points or something, um, but also that seemed that the counting process just seemed to work a lot better there. So and that was something I didn't really quite know exactly what to expect beforehand, but um, that was another thing that made um, made 2020 uh, more dramatic, I guess, than 2022 was.
0: So turning now to 2024, it's just you know. Just under two years away, so of course we got to start talking about it. Of course, Crystal Ball released its initial twenty twenty four Senate map and its ratings, and one of the races that's of course gotten the most early coverage is Arizona. We've talked about it a fair amount already on the podcast, but what's your take on it, and how hard is it to project a race with the potential for three major candidates to be going to the general
2: election? Well, you know, in some ways it's easy because you could just sort of. Th- you know throw it in the toss up column because um you know I think I think it actually be a harder call if it was if cinema had not switched parties and she still had her baggage but was still sort of in line to maybe be the democratic nominee then you could maybe sort of think about well should this be like a leans democratic race although cinema's numbers were bad before she switched parties too I don't know, you know. Again, it would have maybe been a little bit more complicated from a rating perspective, but I didn't really see any reason to, you know, with with the, it, the, the the likelihood of it being a three-way race. I think you just have to sort of toss it in the in the in the toss-up column. You know, you've got a credible Democrat running, Ruben Gallego, who I think it's fair to say, sort of doesn't start, maybe starts as a more like. Clearly kind of liberal slash progressive candidate compared to where like cinema was in the 2018 cycle and also Mark Kelly when he first started out. And then you've got cinema maybe, maybe not running again. And then the Republican side, who knows who it's going to be. It could end up being one of their fairly weak candidates from 2022. You know, Kerry Lake or Blake Masters could be someone stronger than that, could be someone weaker than that. Um, so I think you just, you just set it aside and, and, and put it in toss up for now.
0: I would love for them to find somebody weaker than Blake Masters to run. That would be a really, thing. Uh, well, I mean,
2: that is a, <laughs> that would be a heck of a challenge. Um, and I mean, I look, I remember and I, I've, I've tweeted this, so, you know, whatever I stand by it, but I, uh, you know, there were a lot of bad Republican candidates last time. I really thought Masters was the worst. And I think it, I think mm-hmm. it kind of shows up in the performance because, and I think, I think a lot of people would say Herschel Walker, but I think that Walker at least had some built up goodwill th- that I don't think Masters ever had, because at least Walker had been around for a long yeah. time. And again, I'm, you know, he had all sorts of problems. But Walker, I think basically had kind of a sunnier disposition for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and uh, I don't know, Masters was just, I, I just, a I think just kind of a, a, a strange candidate and I'm sure Republicans, I'm sorry, Democrats would just would just love for him to be the nominee again, although, you know, in a in a three way race, maybe he could actually win um, if, in fact, cinema is hurting the Democratic nominee more than the Republican nominee, although the polling has been kind of mixed on that. I think there was just one today that um, although I think that one showed showed Gallego getting getting hurt more by cinema than than Kerry uh, Lake, who was just the, the, the tested candidate. But I think Gallego was leading by a small amount, but then it was basically a tie um, in the in the three-way um, race. So, um, you know, l- long, long way to go here, but, um, you know, we'll see if the Republicans could sort of find somebody stronger because, you know, that seat and, and several others are, are hypothetically right there for the taking.
1: You know, one thing you guys do when it comes to race ratings that I both admire and fills me with trepidation is, right before election day, you take everything out of the toss up column and you make your fearless predictions on, you know, is it going to be lean R or lean D? That feels so difficult to me. And no one else does that. I think, like you were saying, you know, the tough ones, ah, just throw them on the toss up column. How do you go about doing I mean, that? we
2: just try to collect as much information as we can. You know, we we do generally, you know, we do get a, get, get a sense of things. Um, you know, throughout the season and then usually like the weekend before we're all just sort of, look, you know, asking around various sources and whatnot. And, you know, a lot of them, you know, people just say, Hey, it's, you know, it's toss up or whatever. I mean, you know, the thing about the house in, in 2022 and, and there were some of this in 2020 as well, but, you know, it seemed like a lot of the internal stuff that I heard about. I, I don't get, you know, I don't, I, I get little dribs and drabs here and there of like, what's, you know, what, what the parties have or whatever. Um, but, you know, it seemed like everything was a lot of it was like legitimately very close when, you know, at, when they sort of stopped tracking. And then it was just sort of you had to make sort of a judgment as to which way you thought things would would sort of fall. And I personally thought just based on history and um, sort of how I interpreted the trajectory of things near the end that the Republicans were just do better in the House than they did. Um, and it was a second straight cycle where um, the House projections just mine were not very very good and and uh but i don't necessarily think that that other others who do this sort of thing you know did much differently than 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 we did um but you know the, there was um there was a, there was just a lot of legitimate uncertainty at the end but we sort of feel like hey we're a we're a, a publication that is uh that does election handicapping and that's not like the only thing we do but like that's what a lot of people are looking for and so we feel like hey we've got a you know handicap all these things and offer our best judgment you know sometimes we make late switches that work out like um right before the virginia governor's race we switched from mccall to yunkin that ended up being right um you know when we switched late in this time we had fetterman favored the whole time in pennsylvania and then we switched it right at the end i had sort of you know i basically thought that oz had sort of caught up by the end and that it would be super close it ended up being not being that close and Fetterman ended up winning of course um <laughs> But, you know, we, we did okay in the Senate. I mean, uh, that was the only race we missed outright. We we had um we had Georgia Lenar at the end, but then we, you know, because of the runoff, we got a do-over and we did end up picking Warnock. So, you know, if you want to be a harsh critic, you can say we missed two Senate races. If you want to be softer on us, you could say we missed one. I think that's not bad. Now, when the Senate's 50-50, anything, you know, anything you do will, will upset who you think the overall favorite is. But I was pretty pessimistic about Catherine Cortez Masto. But, um, you know, John Ralston picked Cortez Masto and, you know, people were critical of us for being like, oh, you're just going with with Ralston. On one hand, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we do trust his judgment on things. And also, like, frankly, his assessment of what's going on, like, I almost look at it as like, it's as good of as a poll, you know what, You know what I mean? Like, it, like it's an, in, it, he's as good at, he's as good at it now, or he's so good at it that, it, that it's sort of one of the indicators you have to look at in that particular state. Um, you know, we also, frankly, had heard some sort of kind of sunnier democratic polling information about, um, about Nevada over the weekend that also kind of, reinforced, um, what Ralston had said. And, you know, it ended up being like a less than one point race. So it wasn't like there was some sort of huge indication, but yeah, we, we sort of ended up in a place in the Senate that I didn't necessarily expect us to. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it also, um, it wasn't Republicans winning 53 or 54 seats, you know, that we, we didn't really go there. I mean, I, I really thought in our, you know, again, our final projections ended up being, you know, kind of rosy for Republicans, but like, They could have also been rosier, you know, like you could have read the data that way. And, you know, in our final update before the election, I remember writing like, you know, we're sort of suggesting here that the Republicans are going to pay a penalty for this and that. But um, uh, and then, you know, depending on what happens, you know, we'll see how big the penalty is. And it turns out the penalty was even bigger than we thought.
1: So we bounced back and forth a bit between last cycle and this cycle. But I want to ask you uh, another question about 2024. So I think there's universal agreement that the most difficult Senate seats that Democrats have to defend are in the the three states that Trump won, where Democrats currently hold Senate seats, West Virginia, Ohio, and Montana. But now you rated Ohio and Montana as toss-ups, but West Virginia as lean Republican. So I'm really curious to know why the split in, among that trio. It's
2: basically just because West Virginia is so much more Republican at the presidential level. Um, and, uh, you know, what, what you, you know, what you see, and we actually, we've got something coming out in the the crystal ball real soon about this. The kind of overperformance that Mansion would need, basically, you probably would think he'd need to run something like forty percent, forty points ahead of the presidential margin in his state. That sort of overperformance used to be a lot more common than than it is today. Uh, Mansion himself was able to do it in 2012, but if you look at like the 2016 and 2020 results, you don't see those kinds of uh, overperformances, particularly in 2020, where. Um, you know, you, the 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 Senate and presidential races, you know, tracked you know closer together than than they had in some of the more recent uh, or in, in some of the some of the other uh, president or presidential um, slash Senate cycles um, this century. Um, so I just think that that you know West Virginia is even redder now than it was in 2018 when Manchin won by three points. Um, it's very well possible that Manchin could face a stronger opponent. It's a presidential year. I just think there's like a, a big pile of evidence suggesting that Manchin should start as an underdog. You know I wouldn't write off any incumbent to start off with. We also don't know if he's even running again. Um, but I think it was just sort of an unusual situation. Um, you know the kind of in, in some ways it reminds me a little bit of. You know, Colin Peterson, who sort of was a real outlier um, by the end of his time in Congress in that he held like a 30 point Trump district and essentially no one else in either party held a district um, where the other side's presidential candidate had done better than like 15 points. And so, um, and Manchin is sort of in that sort of situation too, in that he's a real outlier. And what has generally happened to outliers in, you know, the house and the Senate is that eventually they've ended up losing or retiring or whatnot. Um, and you know, Peterson ended up losing in the 2020 cycle, um, in a race that actually didn't end up being that close. Although he, like some other Minnesota Democrats was hurt by some of these, uh, Marijuana party candidates on the ballot, but um, you know the, the, there was just was too much of a, a drag at the top of the ticket, and I think that's ultimately the case for Mansion um, in, uh, in 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 twenty twenty four. So that's why I see him in a different category than than you know than John Tester and Sherrod Brown, who still need to generate crossover support, but not nearly as much as Mansion would need.
0: Now with all of these target seats for republicans to potentially pick up in 2024 obviously one way for democrats to keep their majority which is currently at 51 seats would be to maybe lose a couple seats but then maybe pick up a seat or two but as you look at the 2024 map it is extremely slim pickings in terms of targets for democrats to try to pick up a seat there are basically two that are in the realm of possibility, neither of which I would consider to be good targets. Um, That's Texas and Florida. I think you started both of those in the likely Republican category. So just talk a little bit about what you think, what is more likely to happen there in terms of which state might be possible for Democrats?
2: Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, I I don't see a huge difference between the two states. I mean, Texas historically is more Republican, but I think Texas is sort of getting a little more competitive and Florida may be getting a little less competitive. And, you know, it wouldn't stun me actually if, um, if at some point, you know, Texas sort of, um, past Florida in terms of competitiveness. I think that um, the the presidential vote in Texas, it was Trump by about five and a half there and uh, Trump won Florida by a little more than three. Um, and so they've gotten a lot closer in recent years. And, you know, I wrote something last year just about the... Um, you know, some of the places in the country that are sort of growing the fastest. And, you know, Florida and Texas are both really fast growing states. And so it's no surprise that there are a lot of counties in both states that are growing quite quickly. Um, a lot of those fast growing places are very Republican, particularly in Texas. But the fa- some of the fast growing places in Texas are Republican, but getting a little more Democratic. And a lot of the fast growing places in Florida, which I think a lot of them are pretty retiree heavy. Um, a lot of those places are actually getting more Republican in sort of the Trump era, and so I just kind of wonder about those demographic trends, the fact that the Democrats seem to be sort of losing ground in, um, in Miami-Dade and some other places, um, and you know I just I just wonder if Texas may eventually become more competitive. But in the context of 2024, I think both states are pretty similarly positioned, and unfortunately for Democrats, they're, they're similarly positioned, kind of kind of right of center. Um, I would say that particularly, you know, if there's a prominent Democrat who runs against Ted Cruz, my guess is that raising money will not be that much of a problem. You know, that is an advantage that Democrats have um have sort of taken from Republicans in recent years that Democrats have all this small dollar fundraising might. And I, I suspect that, you know, an email marketing campaign from Ted Cruz's opponent would probably lead to a lot of money, particularly if it's someone credible, like like Colin Allred, the House member from Dallas area. Um, former football player. He's sometimes mentioned, you know, I don't, I don't know if he's actually going to do it or not, but he's the sort of person who probably would be able to launch a credible campaign and raise money. But, you know, to what end? I mean, I think that Democrats are going to want to play offense somewhere. Um, it's just a kind of bleak uh, op- options. And, you know, Democrats did have, a, I think, a pretty credible candidate in Florida in, in 2022, in Val Demings, and she just got swamped. Like Like, Basically, the Democrats did in, in everything else, and in, in Florida, um, and, and so you know where where do they go in, in that state? So it's just it's just a bad it's just a bad map. You know, the Democrats are just defending you know so many more seats than Republicans are. You know, one of these days, the Democrats are going to have a bad election on this map. They really haven't since 1994 it was the last time that that would that the Republicans really picked up a lot of seats on this map, and then Democrats gained. A fair number in two thousand, a fair number in two thousand six, and then kind of held their own in, in you know in, in twenty twelve and twenty eighteen when you look at them together. But um, you know, it's just a big imbalance and um you know it's also you know, the Democrats only have three members left in Trump states. Well, they're all on the ballot this time. So um it's just it's just structurally pretty difficult. You know,
0: I do think a good candidate for Texas would have been beta O'Rourke had we just put him in some sort of like stasis chamber for six years and he had right. gone and run for president and then come back and run for governor had done and done a bunch said of that stuff. He
1: wanted to ban everyone's guns or whatever. Yeah. It was but if we said. just
0: put him in a coma or something for six years, pulled him back out to let him run against Ted Cruz again, that that's what we yeah, really he,
2: Yeah. They needed to put him in the, the <laughs> cryo chamber or something or like, I don't know, like Austin, Austin powers or something. <laughs> um, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, you know, in, in, and um, uh, you know, again, I think that the Democrats need to—they need to try to find someone, which I'm sure they're—they're they're doing. Um, and also, you know, if you can—if you're the Democrats and you could sort of push Texas along a little bit, you know, toward being more of a swing state, you know, it would open up a lot of opportunities. I mean, you know, part of the the overall Senate problem for Democrats is that, you know, they do control a lot of the 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 the, the, the states in the or the seats in the in the most competitive states. Um, I, I, I'm stealing this from someone and I apologize to whoever I'm stealing it from because um, it, it's it's a it's a really good point but if you look at era, some basically some of the closest states in the 20 uh, 2020 presidential race uh, Arizona Nevada and Georgia and then Michigan Pennsylvania and Wisconsin um, I think the Democrats hold all but one of the Senate seats in those states. So they're really doing quite well in some of the really competitive states. But, you know, it it, it stands to reason that probably over time, the Democrats are going to lose some ground in some of those states, or at least in the, the Midwestern portion of that. And so where do they make up for that? Well, the Republicans have both seats in North Carolina. They have both seats in Florida. They have both seats in Texas. Like, those are one Dem- Democrats over the next, like, generation are probably going to have to compete for. And they have competed. They just haven't really won them recently. Um, but I think that you're going to need sort of more of a breakthrough in that region, um, you know, to, to win future Senate majorities, um, particularly if the, if the Republicans, you know, do well this time, you know, if they actually pick up like. You know, three, four Senate seats or even more than that, which is possible if they win the presidency at the same time, you know, that would give the Republicans a little bit of, a, of an advantage that that it's going to be hard for Democrats to sort of make up for in, in the short term. But again, we can't make any assumptions. Uh, you know, the Republicans have have uh, they had this problem of kicking away Senate races um, sort of at the start of when I started doing this work 2010 and 2012 in particular. Then that sort of problem went away for a little bit and then it sort of reared its ugly head in, in 2022, although you know, you also have to look at it um, and and say, you know, given how big the margin was for like Mark Kelly in Arizona and for like Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, I guess then the question is, is would there have been alternative candidates who actually would have won? Like would Doug Ducey, have beat Mark Kelly? Maybe. Um, but but I don't necessarily know um, if that's definitively the case. You know, would Sununu have beaten Maggie Hassan? Quite possibly, but maybe not. Um so, you know, that, that's also something we need, we need to think about.
1: We have been talking with Kyle Kondik of UVA's Crystal Ball, one of our favorite fellow election analysts. Kyle, please let our listeners know where they can find all your work.
2: Uh, Centerforpolitics.org, backslash crystal ball is our crystal ball website. We uh, publish generally uh, twice a week or at least once a week. Um, and you could sign up for our uh, email uh, newsletter um, uh, there. It's free to free to sign up. Um, we also have a podcast that is relatively new called Politics is Everything um, that my colleague, uh, Kara Ong Whaley has sort of taken the lead on, but I appear on that. Relatively often, my colleague J. Miles Coleman also does. Uh, and so that comes out uh, pretty often and is available on all uh, podcasting platforms and, you know, still active on Twitter at Kay Condic, maybe not as active as I as I used to be. Um, you know, part of it is like the longer I do this, the. The the less I feel like I truly have like really provocative things to say or that I want to say. So maybe I I don't (laughs) I I don't tweet as much as I used to, but I'm still pretty active there, particularly on, uh, you know, when it comes to sort of like big events like the, you know, the McCarthy House. How Speaker vote and other things. I try to chime in on those those sorts of things. And yeah, so, you know, but uh, maybe at some point there'll be some sort of alternative to Twitter for election folks, but I don't haven't seen a good one yet. And Twitter still seems to basically be functional, um, even whatever you may think of Mr. Mr. Musk and his politics, but um, still trying to uh, go strong there. And yeah, I will say also that um, with the McCarthy Speaker vote, to me, that sort of reasserted why Twitter is so awesome and important, because that was the place to follow it. And until somewhere, something sort of supplants that as a place to follow events like that, I think it's still going to stay relevant for us in the sort of the politics space.
1: I think we are stuck with Twitter, love it or hate it. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me. <clears throat>
1: That's all from us this week. Thanks to Kyle Kondik for
0: joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer Cara Zelaya and editor Trevor Jones. We'll be back next week with a new episode.